This is a CBC podcast. The world was told it was a threat. People were urged to pay attention to the science, change your ways, your behavior, in order to protect the future. I'm not talking about today, and not even really about climate change. I'm revisiting the days decades ago when the ozone layer was thinning, holes opening up. But back then, the world did come together. The threat was met with solidarity and action. And now, with the same kind of talk around climate change, look to Pakistan and the devastating floods linked to increased greenhouse gas emissions. Hear the country's urgent calls for the world to help, both by curbing emissions. And by having wealthier nations accept their outsized role in causing the problem, by providing hundreds of billions of dollars to less developed nations bearing the brunt of a warming planet, a tale of two crises, past and present, and the lessons in it all. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. The flood washed away our roads and plants. The village is in danger. People are scared to spend the night at home. The rain just came down in buckets, and so if if it's seven times more than you've seen before, and there are no gaps in it, neither the soil, the cities, nor our infrastructure has had time to even absorb it. The whole town is underwater. Nothing could be saved. No food is available. No rice. No vegetables. Nothing here. All the people are worried about food. The world has watched terrible scenes like these unfold in southern Pakistan over the past few weeks. Floods caused by unprecedented monsoon rains and melting glaciers have killed at least a thousand people and destroyed millions of homes. The monsoons came earlier and lasted longer than usual. It all points to extreme weather linked to climate change. Pakistan is urging other countries to help with emergency aid, but it wants more in the long run for it. And for other nations suffering the consequences of a climate crisis, they blame largely on wealthier countries. Munir Akram is the ambassador and permanent representative of Pakistan to the United Nations. Ambassador, hello. Hello. I know that you're far away from home, but I'm wondering if you can give me your sense of the damage to life and to property in Pakistan. Well, estimates are that about 33 million people have been affected. By this disaster,、uh, one third of the country is underwater. Six million people are destitute. There is、uh, obviously difficulties in reaching people in inaccessible areas. Five、uh, thousand kilometers of roads have been washed away. Two hundred and fifty bridges have been destroyed, and、uh, therefore the task of relief、uh, is obviously difficult. And、uh, we will soon have to move to rehabilitation, to rebuild houses, to revive jobs, repair canals, and provide healthcare,、uh, prevention of、uh, waterborne and communicable diseases, provide、uh, protection to children who have been orphaned or who have been separated from families, and then, of course, move to the task of reconstruction. And I and I want to get to all of that, but I'm I'm just wondering, has this disaster had any effect on on you personally? What are you hearing from your family and your friends back home? 
Well, I come from the province of Sindh, which has been the most heavily affected. Our farm has been uh, basically washed away. 45 families uh, have been rendered homeless. They are still underwater. So, of course, we are trying to help at the personal level as well, because this crisis is a personal crisis for many Pakistanis, including myself. What has caused all of this massive flooding? I think it is quite clear that this is a consequence of climate change and global warming. In the months of May through June, Pakistan had temperatures which were three to five degrees Celsius above the norm that was there 50 years ago. The climate scientists say that the tipping point for climate change is two degrees Celsius above the mean for the last 100 years. We have already crossed that tipping point. Our temperatures were three to five degrees above the mean average. And this uh, caused uh, melting in the glaciers. There were outbursts uh, of floods early. Uh, And then, of course, the precipitation caused by the extreme heat uh, resulted in the torrential rains, which were nonstop for almost three weeks. So we were literally inundated. One third of the country is underwater. So you have a plan to confront climate change and the extreme weather and damage it can cause. Can you tell me about that? Well, we have been discussing climate change in the Group of 77, and Pakistan happens to be the chair of the Group of 77 developing countries. But in the light of this disaster, we are pressing for a five-point program to be adopted by the General Assembly and by the COP27 climate conference. First of all, mobilization of the $100 billion per year Uh, which has been pledged by industrial countries as climate finance, to allocation of half of this climate finance to adaptation projects, because developing countries are living with the consequences of climate change and deserve adaptation projects. Thirdly, we are calling for a financing facility to compensate for loss and damage that is suffered by countries from climate change. Fourthly, we are calling on the industrial countries to achieve not net zero by 2050, but net minus in consistent with their historic responsibilities for for climate change. Uh, And finally, any programs that are undertaken by developing countries for mitigation, such as installation of renewable energy, that these mitigation projects should also be funded by the international community. So much of this comes down to the fact that you and the other developing nations say they you need much more money to be able to deal with the consequences of climate change, much more money to cut your own emissions, but it's also a question of equity, isn't it? Well, certainly, because the developing countries are not responsible for the emissions that are causing global warming and climate change. And in order to adapt to the changes, to participate in the mitigation efforts towards a green global economy, the developing countries need financial support and financial investment. And uh, the $100 billion that was pledged four years ago by the industrial countries in Paris, that has not been fulfilled as yet. We think that the amount will rise uh, given the larger impacts which are happening 
And we also need to find ways of mobilizing additional finance from the private sector in form of investments into adaptation, into mitigation projects, and uh, to also get the developed countries to provide financing for loss and damage, which is which developing countries are suffering. But I wonder um, whether you think that can possibly happen, considering that the $100 billion hasn't even come through yet. That's true. But, you know, as the COVID pandemic illustrated, that when there is the political will, money can be mobilized because the developed countries did mobilize $17 trillion into their economies in response to the COVID pandemic. The model that was adopted by the industrial countries to support themselves, that model should be adopted to support the developing countries as well, because we are in in this together. The the global climate. I wonder if you. I wonder if you really do feel as though you're in this together. Well, certainly we need to convince our industrial country partners that they are in this together. Today is Pakistan. Tomorrow it could be Canada, uh, or it could be Germany, or it could be uh, other places. You know where climate change will creep up either slowly or with dramatic impacts, as has happened in Pakistan. We have had some dramatic weather here as well, so I understand what you're saying. But I suppose the difference for Pakistan is that it's just not as able to handle that kind of extreme weather and climate. Absolutely. I mean, we are a developing country. We are a poor country. Our per capita income is a fraction of the richer countries, the US, Canada, others. So our capacity to respond is obviously much more restricted. And developing countries will not be able to respond without international solidarity. I think we saw that in the pandemic. And I think climate change is even a larger existential challenge to all of us. And therefore, we think that the political leadership in the industrial countries must wake up to this fact and try to build a structures of international solidarity because unless we cooperate, unless we have support, climate change is, is going to defeat us. I'm wondering what, what your fellow diplomats from Canada and other wealthy nations say to you when you raise these points. Uh, I do not see any disagreement. There is a um, recognition among all those who have studied the issue and that Yes, this is a global problem. It's a global challenge. And as the UN Secretary General keeps saying, you know, we have attacked nature and nature is fighting back. What specifically must Canada do now when it comes to the catastrophic loss and damage your country is suffering? Well, I think Canada is um, a developed industrial country. It has got its own capacities, both financial, technological uh, and humanitarian Canada is also a member of the G7 countries. These are the countries, if they were to guarantee uh, the mobilization of finance from the market, they could do so. And of course, Canada, uh, with a progressive prime minister, a progressive government, is well-placed to take the lead in forging such a consensus among the industrial countries and then making this into an international campaign and international support. There is one thing that, that to me, sets Pakistan apart from other developing or poorer nations, and that is you have a wealth of very well-educated, brilliant um, scientists, engineers, and yet 
the infrastructure just is chronically underinvested in, and and especially along the Indus River, which is used to irrigate much of the farmlands, probably your farmland. I'm wondering if your country should accept at least some of the responsibility for the scale of the disaster. Yes, you know, this point has been made, and of course we can do better in uh, building our infrastructure. The question is, of course, uh, infrastructure is usually built through investment, and so far that investment has not come to Pakistan. We do not ourselves have the kind of magnitude of resources required for that massive infrastructure investment. The only infrastructure investment we've got so far is from China. I, I hear, and I hear what you're saying about wanting to attract more investment, but but you know as well as I do that that a lot of Western investment is wary of pack of investing in Pakistan because of corruption. Well, you know the the fact is that corruption is exists in many countries, and I think that you could not say that Pakistan is the sole example of, of corruption. Uh, development and investment has taken place, is taking place in many countries, despite corruption. Investment uh, in India. Um, do you think that corruption in India is any less than Pakistan? Uh, so, but- so what do you think is the problem then? Why, why is there not enough investment in, of the kind that you say your country needs? I think uh, partly it is our fault that you know we have not, focused sufficiently on ways and means of attracting investment in having good, viable projects developed uh, to present to private investors. Partly, it is a function of the financial system where uh, credit rating agencies are very subjective in the way they judge various places for investment. And I think that uh, it is also uh, that uh, investors are very, shall we say, cautious about putting money into developing countries. And this is not only Pakistan. Infrastructure investment is only going to a handful of developing countries. And I think that there is something wrong with the system where we are unable to channel investment into the majority of developing countries. The point is that the frequency and the magnitude of climate impacts is increasing. Uh, when we had the floods in 2010, a bridge over the river Swat was washed away. We rebuilt that bridge 16 feet higher. Today, that bridge is underwater. So the impacts of climate change are becoming more serious. These floods are exponentially larger. Ambassador, I, I thank you for your time, and I, I wish only good things for your country. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, I know the conversation around money for less developed nations can be a bit confusing. So here goes. I'm going to try to clarify it. There is, of course, the long-awaited, yet-to-be-delivered promise by wealthier nations, including Canada, to provide $100 billion U.S. dollars every year to help countries like Pakistan both transition to cleaner energy and adapt to the effects of global warming. And that's not supposed to be available now until next year. But there's another chapter of the money issue that's become so contentious and so urgent for these nations with relatively little, which emit relatively little, but who suffer the most from this changing planet. They want to be able to tap into the riches of nations like Canada. They want to be compensated for what they label their loss and damage to have a ready source of cash when disasters hit, 
so they can react, rebuild, and prevent even more devastation and death. And I'm not just talking about money from governments. They also want the private sector, which has often profited off the backs of these poorer countries, to contribute its fair share as well. It's something that's not going over well with some, and that's why it's expected to be a central topic at this year's Climate Change Summit in Egypt in just a few weeks. Eddie Perez is the International Climate Diplomacy Manager for Climate Action Network Canada. He joins me now to break this down just a little bit more. Eddie, hello. Hello. When you see the scale of the disaster unfolding in Pakistan, where does your mind go? For me, what we saw in Pakistan is both shocking and also politically horrifying. It actually exposes how... In 2022, we actually have not yet created a system that is able to respond to the devastation that Pakistanis are experiencing with these floods. But it's also terrifying because the question that always comes to my mind is, which country is next? Right. And because there are other countries that are also vulnerable. But just to stay with Pakistan for now, the government of Canada promised $5 million in humanitarian aid for the victims of the floods in Pakistan. What do you think of that promise? I think we need to separate two things. The humanitarian community is one that is prepared, that is doing an amazing job with very little resources. But we're talking about a devastation of a country that is not responsible for the climate crisis. And at this moment, those $5 million, while they can lead towards action that is needed at the local level, they are really, really inadequate to the size of the responsibility that Canada has, a wealthy and major emitter country in response to the losses and damages that we're seeing. And and let's get into some more of that, because last year the Canadian government doubled what is called its International Climate Finance Commitment to $5.3 billion over the next five years. And that's Canada's share of that long-standing promise by developed countries to provide $100 billion each year in climate finance to developing nations. How satisfied are you with that commitment? So essentially, I think the decision to double climate financing was a, a good decision. While the amount still remains far from Canada's fair share, it is a very good way to enhance climate funding in the upcoming years. Okay, so that $100 billion, it still actually hasn't been fully realized yet, but it is earmarked for adaptation and mitigation efforts. But as we heard from Ambassador Akram, developing countries say there's a need for separate funding for losses and damages that have been caused by climate change to their countries. And that should come from wealthy nations that have been big emitters. Why have wealthy nations like Canada been reluctant to commit to that additional funding? Because uh, when we talk about addressing losses and damages caused by the climate crisis, we have turned that debate into a toxic one. Uh, The United States for the past decade has always linked those uh, ask for loss and damage funding to compensation and liability. They have always said that the attribution for these losses and damages does not fall into the shoulders of wealthy countries. And that has led to actually ignoring and actually pushing away the discussions on loss and damage as an issue of international solidarity. 
Okay, how do you how do you move forward, though, when there is so much fear about that idea of liability of lawsuits of opening them up to all kinds of damage claims? Well, I mean, we, we did see openness from Minister Gilbert. He uh, said in the summer that he wanted to change that discussion. He said it to the National Observer, we're not there yet, but we do see openness to address this issue at the highest possible level and create a system that actually helps people in Pakistan have support. It's a great idea, but how do you do it then and, and remove the liability from it? What's the structure that you have? How do you decide who gets how much and when? We need two things. And this is something that the developing countries themselves, the island states, have been asking. We need to have a system, a mechanism within the climate convention that is able to discuss these issues. Think about it like an institution in the UN that is actually focused on addressing losses and damages. At this moment, when communities in the global south, they would want to have funding for solar panels. There are institutions out there where you could apply for funding to install solar panels in these communities. When communities in Africa or Latin America would want to invest to build seawalls or uh, education programs to inform people about adaptation, resilience and health, there are mechanisms out there where you could apply to get this funding. But there is absolutely nothing absolutely nothing where countries could apply or seek for funding when it comes to climate disasters. That's missing. So the first thing that we need to identify is how do we fix that? Let's try to push this to a a real life, real time example. If this agency or institution exists, how would it operate to help Pakistan? The human rights rapporteur on climate change, Ian Fry, has actually just published a report where he is actually giving us some kind of options. Which, uh, one of them is using the existing financial institutions that we have at the moment, for example, like the Green Climate Fund, as a channel so that immediate funding could be allocated through it because this is a, a, a multilateral fund where all developing countries could apply immediately for funding. So that could be one solution. But then the other one is that we also need to look at what is out there the different humanitarian assistance programs where countries could come and ask for funding when these immediate disasters happen, and then bring them all together so that their response is rapid in the context of climate change and not only takes into consideration the immediate, but also all the process of recovery at the local level. And then have a discussion at COP27 to identify what else is needed? Are you concerned, though, yeah. that that there may not even be any discussion of this at COP27 in Egypt? I think there will be. And I have an idea of, of what's going to happen because you talk with the Pakistani ambassador. He is also leading the G77, the biggest group within the climate convention. And they have put forward a request from all the developing countries asking for an agenda item to discuss financial arrangements for loss and damage. It is the first thing that countries are going to discuss because it is part of the agenda debate that happens on the first day of COP. 
And so that debate is going to happen and the whole world is going to be watching. So loss and damage is going to be that first thing that is going to signal if there is trust among countries. That is where I see Canada playing a big role as a bridge between the developing countries and the major emitters. And then from there, I do feel that if this agenda item is adopted, all the COP27 outcome is going to be shaped around the possibility of fixing the system so that is fit for purpose in response to climate impacts. So I do feel that people are preparing to make COP27 a loss and damage COP. And if that happens, will it fix the problem? Well, I, it won't necessarily fix the problem. We are in a hell of a mess. The losses and damages that we're seeing are happening everywhere. This needs to be an issue of global concern. Look at what's happening in California at the moment with the heat waves. Look at what happened in British Columbia last year. Look at what is happening with the heat waves in China. Climate-induced disasters are increasing. By taking a decision at COP27 that there is going to be an institutional body where countries could apply for funding in response to these losses and damages, that is going to be a first response that as a global community, we can come together and find these kind of solutions. Eddie Perez, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we contacted the Office of Canada's Environment and Climate Change Minister, Stephen Gilbo. In a written statement, it said the minister is listening to his counterparts from other countries and promises more details in the coming months at multilateral meetings, including the COP27 gathering in Sharm el-Sheikh. We got something wrong on last week's show. In our segment on Hawaii's energy transition, we said Hawaii has almost six times the amount of renewables as Canada does. We should have said that when you don't include hydropower, the percentage of renewable energy on Hawaii's electricity grid is about six times that of the percentage on Canada's grid. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Spray, deodorant, refrigerators, air conditioners. Do you know what these things once had in common? Step back a few decades and the world was learning the answer. They all contained chemicals that can shoot into the stratosphere and eat away at ozone, a protective layer that keeps us safe from UV radiation. Now, these days you don't hear very much about ozone, and that's because the ozone layer is healing. But it took a lot of teamwork around the world to make that happen. 35 years ago, on September the 16th, 1987, a group of countries signed the Montreal Protocol, a monumental multilateral agreement that led to real action to protect the environment. Our producer, Molly Siegel, has been taking a look back in time and searching for lessons for today's climate crisis. When I started researching this story, one thing kept coming up in conversation. Ozone? It's personal. 
What I mean is, the risks, quite literally, have an impact on individuals. UV exposure causing skin cancer. But it was also personal in the action people took. Here's how it all started for Cora Young. So in 1989, I was, I was eight years old, and um, I was really into reading and into doing crafts and hiking. I loved the environment, you know, being outside, but activism was sort of outside of my, my realm until I had this amazing teacher in grade three, Mrs. Shields. Young was attending school in Etobicoke. That's now part of the city of Toronto. When I got there in grade three, I was new to the school, so I didn't have um, a lot of friends at that time. And so this, this teacher that I had was really influential because of that. Our class had, you know, 25 kids, and we had an area where we would, we would sit and listen to her talk. And she'd actually put in some, like, old claw-footed bathtubs with cushions in them. Um, so we would fight over who got to sit in those. And maybe Cora Young was sitting in one of those clawfoot bathtubs, listening intently, she's new to the school, when the course of her future would change, all because of Mrs. Shields. She cared a lot about environmental issues, and she shared that enthusiasm with us. So one of the things that she taught us about was the damage to the stratospheric ozone layer that was being caused by pollution. And what we could do, even as you know, eight-year-old kids, to, to prevent that. They learned about the things that contained chemicals that were eating away at the Earth's protective ozone layer. And the most notable for eight-year-old Cora Young polystyrene foam, which you probably know as styrofoam. At the time, it was being used as clamshell packaging for fast food hamburgers. And so I went home and told my parents we were no longer allowed to eat at fast food restaurants that, that use the styrofoam as a, you know, a crusader. of <laughs> We have to not eat at, at fast food restaurants. And I think my parents were, were quite happy um, about that development. Yeah, well, more of a sacrifice for her and her little sister, of course, than her parents. Young was boycotting this packaging over concerns about CFCs. And you're going to hear that term, CFC, or chlorofluorocarbon, a lot. Those were the chemicals causing ozone destruction. And we'll get into that in more detail. But first, Young and her classmates were not alone. Can I have eight hamburgers on a napkin, please? Yeah. Oh, no. We're trying to get McDonald's to gradually stop using things and we'll gradually stop doing the things that we're doing. That's part of a 1989 story from CBC's The National about similar boycotts from children. For Young, this teacher really inspired her to action, not just to boycott her favorite hamburgers, but to dedicate her life to this issue. She's now a professor of atmospheric chemistry at York University in Toronto. In retrospect, I realize it must have been more impactful for me, of course, because of how it influenced my life. But certainly all the kids in the class were enthusiastic about, you know, making an impact themselves. And that's what this story is all about. Action. From individuals to industry and government. People boycotted McDonald's to make them get rid of the styrofoam clamshells that they used to put on Big Macs and other burgers. This is Susan Solomon. And I'm a professor in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department at MIT. In the mid to late 1980s, Susan Solomon was doing science that would help paint a picture of what was causing the hole to form in the ozone layer and what had to be done about it. 
Scientists, individuals and activists, politicians and industry all came together to fix this problem. In 1987, they signed a binding agreement that would eventually phase out CFCs and replace them. It was called the Montreal Protocol. Diplomats from around the world have reached a historic agreement to save the Earth's ozone layer. That's the natural filter high above the Earth that screens out dangerous radiation from the sun. Representatives from more than 40 countries meeting in Montreal worked out a tentative deal yesterday to reduce the chemicals that destroy the ozone shield. Corey Young. So the Montreal Protocol is widely regarded as one of the most successful international agreements ever. Um, It was the very first agreement that was universally ratified by all countries that are members of the United Nations. And I think that that reputation is well-deserved. It has been extremely successful, um, and it's challenging to get people in the world to agree on anything. Um, So to have us all agree on repairing damage to our environment and how to actually go about that is, is really, really powerful. Really, really powerful, says Young. And she's right. Today, studies show the ozone layer is recovering. And as a byproduct of moving away from some chemicals, we've also made climate gains. But the story of how that happened took a mix of science, policy, communication, and just individual action. Before Susan Solomon started working on ozone, she was studying chemistry as a student. And then when I got ready to go to graduate school, I, I found out there was such a thing as atmospheric chemistry. And I thought, wow, you know, chemistry on a planet instead of in a test tube. So I decided that was what I was going to do. And her timing was good. In 1974, two scientists, Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina, published a paper. In it, they argued that chemicals from aerosols would make it to the stratosphere and eat away at ozone. Here's Roland and Molina that same year, in an interview with host Alan Maitland for CBC's As It Happens. It's essential to have ozone in the atmosphere to shield us from the very harmful ultraviolet radiation. The prediction that we are making is that if we go on using these materials at the same rate that we are now, that this effect will become noticeable within 10 or 20 years and then would remain that way for most of the 21st century. Now, is anybody listening to your alarm? Oh, it's very slow. It takes a while for people to become convinced that the science behind it is really serious. In the 1970s, there was no ozone hole yet. But scientists Roland and Molina were trying to raise awareness of the issue. And they would both go on to eventually win a Nobel Prize for that work in 1995. Roland died in 2012, Molina in 2020. Before there was any international agreement, things were starting to happen in the U.S. Advocacy from Molina and Roland, as well as environmental groups, had sparked action. There was a very simple thing you could do that would help a lot. And that was to literally go to your medicine cabinet, take out the spray underarm deodorant and put in a roll-on instead, you know. I mean, how hard is that? You know, I can remember get on the stick to save the ozone layer. Hairspray, yeah, but, you know, that's not so hard either. By 1975, there was already movement to ditch ozone-depleting chemicals from aerosols. The aerosol spray can scare is on the move again with the setting up of a special scientific committee for the United States National Academy of Sciences to study the problem and the frightening ramifications to human life. 
A United States government task force has recommended banning the use of fluorocarbon aerosol sprays. This week, in full-page ads in major Canadian papers, the Johnson's Wax Company announced it was no longer going to market fluorocarbon products. It wasn't just the United States. Countries were starting to get together to talk about the issue and how to fix it. But by the mid-1980s, that threat that Roland and Melina had predicted, it was suddenly here. And then, boom, along comes the Antarctic ozone hole. Diplomats from around the world were already meeting in 1985 in Vienna to discuss ozone. But the discovery that there was a hole in the Antarctic ozone layer was not enough to prompt firm international action yet. There was still uncertainty about precisely what was happening in the stratosphere to cause the problem. Chlorine, yes, but they needed more information. Now, the diplomats didn't put all their eggs in that basket. They were afraid it would turn out that there was some natural cause or something else for the ozone hole. So initially, they uh, were a little skittish about it, which is absolutely appropriate, in my opinion, when it comes to something like that. Susan Solomon was looking at a few ideas that were floating around. And so there were three theories, and Susan played a key role in coming up with the correct theory. Bob Watson is a retired professor, and he co-chaired some of the International Committees on Ozone, as well as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So those other theories he's referring to are gas from volcanic eruptions, some super complicated dynamics in the atmosphere, and chlorine from chemicals we humans were making and using, which would rise up into the stratosphere, where a reaction would happen with UV light, breaking the compounds down in those chemicals and releasing products that were depleting ozone. Susan Solomon thought that something was happening high up in the stratosphere in the Antarctic, chlorine from CFCs reacting on a surface. I I thought maybe what was happening was unusual surface chemistry on the polar stratosphere clouds that form at the extreme cold temperatures of the Antarctic. So Antarctic really is the coldest place on Earth. And because it's so cold, you get clouds not only in the lower atmosphere, but all the way up into the stratosphere where the air is actually extremely dry and normally there aren't any clouds. So I thought that might be the the explanation. In 1986, Solomon got the chance to test her theory. She was 30 years old and working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She traveled to the Antarctic to lead a team of researchers to physically measure how much ozone was in the stratosphere and to test for the molecules they hypothesized were the culprits. And it was kind of exciting standing out on the roof in minus 40, you know, with the wind blowing, collecting your moonbeams. One of the molecules was easier to measure in moonlight. I mean, that was real science, and I felt so exhilarated and, you know, excited by the whole thing. They were taking measurements of those chemicals, as well as readings of how much ozone was present and how far up into the stratosphere. So picture this. A normal graph of ozone concentration looked like a person's nose in profile. So... When we got down there in August, it had a normal nose. But then something was changing to that face. By the time we got to the middle of September, it was like, you know, a bulldog bit off somebody's nose. I mean, there was just this huge piece of the nose that was missing. It transfigured the face of Antarctic ozone. Her and her team's observations confirmed her theory. 
CFCs that were used in some aerosols, polystyrene foam, refrigerators, and air conditioners, were causing the hole to form in the stratosphere above the Antarctic. So Solomon unlocked the mystery of how this was happening. It was a chemical reaction on those icy stratospheric clouds. And this might seem like a small detail, but for the scientific community, it was a bit controversial. Scientists are a little bit like cats. They like to have the furniture where they are used to having it. The idea that reactions could happen on surfaces in the stratosphere was, it was exactly the opposite of what everyone had thought for decades. And I can remember talking about it in a scientific meeting. I was 30 year, 29, I think, at that time. And people laughed. Back in those days, women had to be tough anyway, and they still do if they're going to be in science. And, uh, you know, I just soldiered on. I didn't, I didn't let it worry me because I just was pretty confident that we had the right answer, and it turned out we did. There was some pushback against what scientists like Solomon were learning about ozone damage. Sound familiar to you? It was a bit of foreshadowing to what we would see unfold with climate science. But despite opposition, leaders from around the world were slated to gather in Montreal in 1987 to tackle this problem. And the data that Solomon and her team had gathered helped push them towards action. Meanwhile, Bob Watson was preparing more tests in Chile to follow up on what Solomon and her team had found. He was working for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab at the time. He and his team wanted to see if Solomon's observations held up. They took measurements by aircraft, flight after flight. It was really clear after four, five, or six that this chlorine theory was indeed correct. In other words, it's we humans were destroying the ozone layer. While the chemistry was complex, literally and figuratively well above our heads, the images of what was happening to the world's sunblock, the ozone layer, were simple to understand. On television, it was shown, look at the ozone hole, and they used beautiful imagery. When you watched the evening news, these incredible images of the ozone hole forming, I mean, it was scary. It looks like the master that ate Manhattan, you know, and there it is. It's like, whoa. It clearly had a big impact on people and on the governments. Bob Watson knew that science alone would not solve the issue. Uh, there's no point having all this good science information if you can't explain it to the public and if you can't explain it to politicians and, equally important, convince the private sector they've got a problem. And so it's very important to me to be able to explain it to the media, explain it to Congress, explain it to all governments of the world when they met in the negotiations. The Montreal Protocol was first signed by a group of countries in 1987. Broadly speaking, the idea was to phase out CFCs. However, there was an obvious equity issue. There were some countries, wealthier countries, who were mostly responsible for causing the issue in the first place. So there had to be something in place to make sure that the countries that didn't cause the problem, developing countries with less money, weren't on the hook for paying for it. As the Montreal Protocol developed, they began to see, hey, you know, we stand to be exploited again, the way we've been exploited by the developed countries so many times, because maybe these substitutes are going to be more expensive. And so we're going to have to pay to fix the problem that they created. And, you know, we're going to need refrigerators and air conditioners and things like that, too, for the health of our people. 
a fund was created to help foot the bill of replacement chemicals in developing countries. But if the refrigerators cost more because of the protocol than they would have cost, it pays the difference. And that was a very important aspect to this. There's another parallel to climate change here. Right now, there are international conversations about what the big emitters in the global north owe to countries in the global south, countries that are feeling the worst impacts of global warming. As for the Montreal Protocol, it wasn't until 1990 that a plan to phase out CFCs for replacements was laid out. That was part of the design of the protocol, annual meetings that took in new information, both scientific and technical, and a plan that would keep evolving in response to those findings. They invited the industry people to be involved. That was the the genius, I think, of the Montreal Protocol. And the industry was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place in a way. I mean, if they didn't get involved, things would be thrust upon them. If they did get involved, they could perhaps influence some of the choices that were made about how much to cut, how soon, which molecules, et cetera, et cetera. And they did. Some replacements already existed. And finding new ones? They're chemists. They make molecules. They had a relatively small investment in continuing to make the same thing they were making. If they could make something else, you know, I guess that wasn't a huge problem for them, right? I mean, they're constantly making new molecules. They love to make new molecules. They're, they're geeks, you know? There was some resistance, but like it or not, it was clear to chemical companies they would need to switch. And if they got on board, they could be involved in the conversations. Bob Watson. You need, you need the private sector to be on board And to be honest, the private sector was probably more on board on the ozone issue than the climate issue. Now, comparing climate action to the story of ozone does have some limitations. One difference is scale. The ozone issue really involved a small subset of industry and just some of the chemicals that companies were making. But Susan Solomon points out for climate change. The companies that produce fossil fuels have massive reasons to stand pat. They own mineral resources that are worth trillions of dollars. And while fossil fuels are the main cause of climate change, there are other industries as well. Then there's the question of how do you get countries around the world to actually agree to something and to stick to their promises? Bob Watson says we can learn some lessons from the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol is legally binding with very explicit goals. You know, you have to reduce this gas by so much in so many years. Where the protocol sets the rules about reductions, it's a bit different than the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. That agreement leaves those decisions up to individual countries. They're called nationally determined contributions. Each country gets to say what reductions in CO2 emissions it wants to pledge and on what timeline. If you look at the Montreal Protocol, it looks much tougher uh, than the pledges under the Paris Agreement. But the success of Paris was it applies to everybody. If he had it his way, the Paris Agreement might look a little different. 
so when they came to the paris agreement if you'd have asked me what would i want i would have wanted the same as the montreal protocol legally binding targets on every country in the world with differentiated responsibilities what i mean by that is industrialized countries should have more obligations more stringent and quicker there was zero chance and i mean zero chance it could ever have been negotiated susan solomon says three key components allowed the world to band together to help heal the ozone layer i talk about three p's as being fundamental to solving an environmental problem it needs to be personal perceptible and you need to have practical solutions those are fundamental now when those conditions are met then you'll have citizen engagement those conditions are now starting to emerge for climate she says more people on the planet than ever before are experiencing it in very perceptible ways and it's affecting us personally and like solomon says there are now practical solutions for example according to the international energy agency in most cases, it's actually cheaper now to invest in onshore wind or solar than it is to make new fossil fuel power plants. But not only does the Montreal Protocol hold lessons for today as the world confronts the damage that fossil fuels have caused to the climate, the protocol itself has actually helped us emit fewer greenhouse gases in the first place. Corey Young. But it turns out that the CFCs, those that are responsible for stratospheric ozone depletion, are also extremely potent greenhouse gases. So one kilogram of a CFC is equivalent to, in terms of global warming potential, to thousands of kilograms of CO2. Young gave me an example of what this savings looks like. When you use a coolant in a car air conditioner that does not turn into a greenhouse gas, that's like taking two cars off the road for a year in terms of CO2 emissions. Now imagine that for every car on the road. And Young says it adds up. There are estimates of the world avoided uh, by the Montreal Protocol. And um, to date, the, the Montreal Protocol is thought to have averted at least 0.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And that effect will continue, continue on into the future, ultimately preventing multiple degrees of, of warming of our planet. When you consider that every fraction of a degree of warming matters, that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change agreed keeping warming to 1.5 degrees is crucial to avoid irreversible changes and ecosystem loss. Half a degree averted? It's huge. And it's a sign that the protocol is working how it was designed to, taking in new science, like climate science, and adjusting policy to evidence. And the science is not over. Young dedicates her research to tracking those chemical replacements and their impacts on the environment. Yeah, it is. It does feel like it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? Where you, you discover a new problem every time you put a different replacement chemical out there. And so I think we have to be really strategic in um, the design of chemicals that we use, because many, we do have quite a lot of information as scientists, and we can do 
quite good predictions. So if we can avoid chemicals that are very persistent, then that can be a major way to get out of this cycle. The next phase may be getting rid of what are called forever chemicals, which you might be familiar with from products like nonstick pants. And although that journey is far from over, it's Young's turn now as a professor to inspire new generations of students with the successes of the Montreal Protocol. Most of my students have never heard of it. They find it very interesting to, to learn that there, is, there has been such success um, in protecting the environment. And it, it tends to make them, I think, more optimistic that we could do better for other environmental issues going forward. The fact that we've been so successful in the past. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. It's September, which means back to work and school for a lot of you. And although the pandemic is still with us, a lot of people who had been working remotely are heading back to the office. And that means more people back in their cars. It is busy out there on the roads. Returning to work has us thinking of how commuting contributes to climate change. We want to know your experience. Maybe you're changing your commuting habits to decrease emissions or switch jobs so you can skip the traffic. Or are you a business owner who's thinking about the climate when considering bringing staff back to the office? Whatever it is, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us about your return-to-work climate solutions by emailing earth at cbc.ca or tweeting at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel, and me. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. And a very warm welcome to our new senior producer, Catherine Rolfson, who joined us this week and has the What on Earth t-shirt to prove it. Happy to have you aboard, Catherine. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.